Welcome to Boiling Point. Most people have heard of Darwin finches, the birds that gave Darwin the idea for the theory of evolution. Today we are going to take a closer look at a group of species that may look less spectacular, but they are evolution in the making. Blennies are fish that have started making their way back to land. Our guest will tell us why the blennies would go through such trouble. Listen to the story in just a moment. Welcome back to Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. On the show, it's your host Kat and Boiling Point trainee Hannah Dawson. Hello. Today we are chatting with Elizabeth Sorovic. Liz is a PhD student at the University of New South Wales in Sydney and she's a repeated offender on Boiling Point. Liz studies blennies and evolution in the making. Welcome to the show, Liz. Pleasure to be here. Liz, first of all, what are blennies? So blennies, the family blennidae is a group of small benthic cryptic fish. What that means is that they generally live on not the deep seafloor, but floor, coral reefs, kind of hard rock surfaces. Uh, they're cryptic, which means they have good camouflage, um, and they're very small. And this group of fish are very interesting because they are doing some crazy things. And when you say small, um, like what size are we talking about? Are we talking like a centimeter? Yeah, centimeter, maybe two centimeters. Really? That small? Oh, wow. I thought they're actually bigger. Oh. Okay. So, so they're hard to find sometimes. <laughs> yeah, they can be. Yeah, <laughs> They like to hide. Nice. And um, why did you decide to study them? So I... I had initially seen them as an undergrad in uh, a marine biology lab, and uh, there was a bunch of fish tanks, one of which had a blenny in it, and it was so cute. It was hand-fed, and so it like lived in its little oyster reef, which is a hard, one of the hard things they live in, and so it would come out of its little oyster reef, and because people fed it, it would come up to you and look at you as you walked by, and basically its eyes were like, are you going to feed me? And it just like begged people to feed it, basically. And it was just so adorably cute as it like followed you. And, so and to you, it was like, please study me. Yes. I was like, it's so adorable. And apparently you can train it. So that was super cool. I was like, wait, really? And just that uh, different people were doing. Uh, at the time, there was a professor coming to talk about more about blennies and speciation and some really cool things about that. So that kind of got me interested reading paper during my master's about blennies uh, doing some even more amazing things like moving from water to land kind of like just besides them being so cool and looking so interesting they're doing this other amazing thing and so that inspired me to do what I do. That's awesome. So we haven't actually really mentioned what that cool thing is other than in the intro. So evolution in the making sounds a bit cryptic maybe to most people. So what is it that is so cool about the blennies that is evolution in the making? So blennies are really unique. Uh, there's about 403 current species of blennies that are known, 26 have, of which have moved to land. So we've actually got in family blennidae, we have some aquatic species, quite a few some amphibious species, and then now we have some land blennies. So you can literally see these fish move from water to land, and that is so cool. So are you saying, just to make it easier to understand, does it mean that the individual individual fish evolve from water to land, or how does it work? So individuals do not evolve, it's populations that evolve. So basically with these blennies, we have certain groups of these fish. They're in the water, 
Um, but there are potentially different threats that they have when they face in the water. Uh, maybe it's limitation of food. Maybe it's not enough holes for them to live in. They love little burrows. Uh, maybe it's just that they get eaten so much. And so in this particular instance, a lot of the research suggests that because of aquatic predation or too many things eating them, they're moving to land. So it's basically, yeah, a fish that can live on land. How do they, how do they manage? How do they even breathe on land? That's a very good question. So these guys actually breathe through their skin, much like a frog does. All right. So yeah, they use their gills, they use their skin, and because of that, uh, they stay also close to the water. So they generally, uh, they stay close to the shore on a rocky rock or a rocky substrate, and just the waves hit them, and so they keep moist. That way they don't dry out and die. So that's how they kind of live on land. They eat the algae on the rocks, um, and they use their tails for movement. And so it's called a sea start, and they basically, like, they get their fins down, and they get their tail, and they flip their tail, and they move, and it's jumping. That's sometimes how they're called, like, rock, rock skippers and things, is because they actually jump. Do they still have gills? They do have gills, which is shocking. Um, but, yeah, it seems that they use them, but not very much. They breathe more through their skin. Right. And um, so this whole process is called speciation, that one species evolves into different species that then can look quite different from each other. Um, how does it? How does that practically work in the Blennies? So uh, how that's working with them is that you have... From the aquatics to the amphibious, they can't interbreed with each other. So you end up having a unique population that does one thing. Um, and so as it ev evolves, as the group evolves to do something else, then becomes so separated from the other one that it can't breed with the other one anymore. And so that's kind of how we're getting more speciation. And as they move from different islands, different rocks to other rocks, they just can't breed with each other anymore. They're too isolated. And so you get a new group. So, Liz, you, they, you said these fish are really small. Does that mean they also don't live for very long? That's a good question. Um, so, as far as I know, they only live for about a, about two to five years tops. So, yeah, pretty pretty short for most most fish. Okay. And are they very um, fertile? Do they reproduce a lot? They do. Like a lot of fish, they lay quite a few eggs. Um, and so, yeah, they end up... So, you've got... They, the holes, besides being burrows for them to live in, they also use it for breeding. And so a male will find a hole, and females will come in, lay their eggs, um, and then the male will fertilize. And then he actually guards the hole for about seven to ten days. Uh, and then after that, he leaves. And because of where the hole is, so most of their holes are right on the water line, if it's like a successful male. <laughs> and so the water will then splash after about seven to ten days of like incubation. The eggs hatch, and the larva comes out into the water because it's sweeping up. And then they get carried in the waves. So that means that their larvae stage, so basically their baby fish stage, is in the water? Yes. That is their one tie to the water for the land group. Besides that, after that, they're in the water for about 30 to 90 days. Um, and then after that, though, they'll, if they live, they will be splashed up on water. And then once they're out of the water onto the rocks, they never go back to the water again. So from what I understand, you don't really do genomics at the moment, right? Like you don't really look at their genome and uh, how they are the different species differ. But maybe you still can, you can still give us a hint. Obviously, this is very special because there are not many groups of species that have managed that or that we see still actively evolving towards a new lifestyle. 
And yeah, you mentioned one of the main reasons is that they escape predators, which is also pretty cool. And I'm sure many other species could uh, benefit from that. Like, for example, rats starting to grow wings and then we have winged rats. Very handy. But that's not happening. So is there any? Well, not yet, at least. I hope for quite a while. Um, All the cockroaches come to mind, which do that, which is even scarier. Is there any hint why blennies are capable of such rapid evolution compared to other vertebrates? That's a good question. We're not completely sure why blennies seem to be prone to speciation. They have a sister taxa call, called gobidae. So gobies, and if you've heard of mudskippers, those are cousins. We're not quite sure. Both of them are prone to it. And it could just be that because they lay so many eggs and they can move around in the water well enough, maybe that makes it easier for them to move from island to island and then kind of be isolated enough. Since it's generally they can breed relatively quickly after... Uh, moving back to land, maybe that's why they're so successful. Is that it doesn't take long for them to be able to be mature enough to lay eggs, and so maybe that's it. We're not quite sure how why they're so successful at speciation, but yeah, that could potentially be why. Yeah, very interesting. So these blennies that when they wash up or when they're living on the rocky substrate, do they only live like adjacent to the ocean, or can they also live in freshwater? That's a very good question. So. I have heard of freshwater blennies, but as I understand it, none of them are land blennies. They're just aquatics. Um, there's a big difference between freshwater and saltwater. Uh, the biggest difference being that there are much more salts in saltwater. Yeah. Um, it changing from about, freshwater is about two to five parts per thousand to like 33, which is normal seawater. So quite a big difference. Um, most most of the land ones for sure live in kind of saltwater. They stay close to the land for or to the water for um, for moisture so that they don't dry out. But, yeah, not that I know of are there any freshwater land blennies mm, so far. Interesting, okay. Where does your research come into the whole game? What do you look at? So I'm looking at why these guys are moving from water to land. We kind of have an idea with the aquatic predation, too many predators, but how are they actually doing it? Um, and how did they get from island to island? So kind of the first part of my thesis was to look at How are they getting from the islands? So they are in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. Very much global. The Blennies, the family Blennidae is extremely global and is pretty much in any ocean you can think of. These guys are not as far spread, but still global. There's about 14,000 kilometers at least between uh, kind of the islands that they are in the Indian Ocean compared to the Pacific. So quite a range. Um, And so I'm trying to figure out how are they getting from these islands? And it's relatively unique species. So there's a couple different hypotheses there and so I'm exploring whether they're doing it via island hopping which is you have an ancestral aquatic blenny, there's aquatic ones on all these islands and maybe an aquatic one then uh, group evolved to be ter- uh, to be a land blenny and then these land blennies because of their like 90-day aquatic larval stage they then floated to another island and then like kind of settled worked on that island and then moved to the next. So that's one hypothesis. If the islands are close enough, potentially they did that. Or the other uh, option would be repeated evolution, where you have each island, because it's got aquatics, that that group of aquatics became ter- became a land blenny. And so that would be many different groups doing it. And that's that they couldn't have gone to another one because the distance is too far. So I'm basically modeling these things with ocean currents to see, oh, could the currents have carried them as far as they need to get to other islands? 
And so, yeah, that's one thing I'm doing. And the other is just looking at how are they changing? Hang on, sorry, um, about the modeling. So that sounds like a fairly complicated model with lots of like factors um, involved. Uh, have you have you had any uh, preliminary results yet? I do um, kind of. I've been working on it now for six months to a year. And it's so far what I've gotten from my model is uh, that looking at Guam, I look at Guam because there are multiple different species on there of Lamblenny as well as amphibious and aquatic. So it's got everything. Um, so looking at Guam in particular, it looks like if I model them, giving them about 90 days to move through the water, um, it looks like so far that they're not hitting anything in 90 days, which is really weird. Then I did kind of, okay, well, maybe they came from another island. So I did kind of a backwards model to test that. And they don't seem to be coming from anywhere. So that's very weird. So potentially some of my islands could have uh, actually repeated evolution happening. It's still kind of primary results. I'm still working through it, but just kind of first things seem to indicate that maybe there's a lot of repeated evolution happening, which is super cool. It's um, That sounds very interesting, but it's also, um, I'm not a modeler, and mm. so I feel mm -hmm. like most of the audience wouldn't be either. It still seems a bit like magic to me, and um, mm. maybe Hannah, as I noticed, I'm modeling as well. Maybe she can comment on that too. But um, yeah, how can you, I mean, obviously you feed the model all the information you have beforehand and then you get the output. But how, how do we know how realistic are these, these models? That's a very good question. Um, so the models I'm using, I'm using a specific program that's specifically designed to model ocean surface current data. I'm actually taking data from the past that we have. Um, from years from like 2010 to 2015. And so we actually have like what the currents were at that time. And so I'm taking data from back then and actually sticking it into this model. So this is actual data that we have. This is what the ocean actually did. When, when you say that, do you mean that it's like the observed ocean currents? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so these are observed ocean currents and what they did. And from there, I'm then sticking in like if there was something in the water at the time, so blenny larvae or small little blennies, what, where would they have gone? And so I, that's how I'm kind of using the model is just kind of, okay, I've put in this real time, in a way, like realistic data from what we've seen, actually observed, and then seeing where they could go. So that means in this case, it doesn't, it doesn't, wouldn't have to be blennies. It could also be rubber ducks. Yes, it can, there's actually some really good um, kind of il to illustrate kind of this happening. There's like a rubber duck model that actually models plastic in the ocean, like what that would look like. And so this model can be used for many things, not just blennies. Interesting, but in opposition to rubber ducks, blennies are animals, so they might have a mind of their own. Isn't there a chance that they would decide to leave a current and um, like say, I don't know if it works that way, but they get, um, they pass, they go past an island on in the ocean current and they're like, oh, that looks nice or the water temperature is pleasant. Um, I want to jump off here. Is that an option or are they too small to move on their own like that? As far as we know with the Belenis, um, there's been, there's been some studies with them and looking at do they actually like, can they propel themselves to the water or are they strictly just passive floating? It seems there's a bit of both there. There are different restraints I can put on my model for my particles when I st or my blennies when I stick them in the water. And so uh, I do kind of temperature because they will die if it's too cold. So there's temperature things I can stick in there. There's, okay, they're not going to survive after this long. Um, there's also, okay, let's have a few of them working maybe against the current at times. And so I can kind of 
I can put those in there as kind of approximations, especially with we don't know how much they actually go against the current. So like things like that, I it's one of those we do our best like understanding of what it is. Yeah, cool. Well, for me, modeling still sounds a bit like magic, but um, impressive magic that can be controlled. So amazing. <laughs> so um, another aspect of your PhD you have been working on is putting blennies into a CT scanner. Sounds interesting at first. Um, what do you, yeah, why, why would you do that? Ah, so good question. So another part of my project is looking at how these blennies are changing from water to land. We have aquatic species, we've got land species. Okay, how, what is the difference? And so no one's really looked at that at least that much. And so the CT scanners are really good because I can send samples of the blennies, both the aquatics and the land ones. And when I send them through the CT scanner, I get a 3D model of their bones. And generally, because of gravity and different other factors, we could potentially see them changing. And so I'm hoping with these CT scans to really see at least a slight difference between the aquatics, which are well adapted to water, compared to the land ones, which might be a little denser bone-wise because they've got the gravity to deal with. Uh, there could also be changes in eyes because in the water, it's a little different than land. So those, I'm hoping to see changes like that as they move from water to land to kind of see what is actually changing. So, yeah. And uh, Liz, as someone who's really unfamiliar with sort of animal um, animals, I guess, in general, in terms of science, what kind of differences would you expect in their eyes when they move to land? Good question. So one of the biggest ones um, that I expect to kind of see is the eyes moving from the side of the head to the top of the head. The reason being is because way, way back, um, about 360 million years ago, you have the first tetrapods moving to land. One of the things that they noticed with them is that their eyes moved from the sides to the top of their head so they could see prey as well as uh, just kind of better out of the water. And so potentially with these guys, I think that they might be doing something similar because while maybe they, they only eat algae, so these guys are, none of them are going to attack you, I swear. Uh, but because they eat algae and things like that, they may not need it for that. But there are land predators they have to worry about, like... Uh, like birds and crabs and things like that. And so like their eyes might be moving to the top of their head to be able to avoid predators and things like that. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, right? It's really cool. <laughs> and have you have you received some or do you have some results yet on the CT scans? I just got uh, the data back, so I am still analyzing data, but just kind of from casual like observing, it does look like the eyes are moving. Maybe not completely to the top of their head, but it's definitely moving and their eyes do seem to bulge out a little bit on the top, just to, yeah. <laughs> cool. All right, so um, a bit of an outlook. You are going into the field very soon in May. And so far you told us you worked a lot with uh, modeling and you worked with dead blennies. So finally, you're going to see some alive ones. So you mentioned Guam before, which is actually remind us where is Guam located again? Good question. So Guam is actually near the Marianas Islands, which is like south of Japan and east of the Philippines. Uh, it's near like chal the Challenger Deep kind of area if you look if you're trying to find it on a map. Um, yeah. And what will you be doing there? So uh, I hope to go there for about three weeks to do some field work with some collaborators that are also very interested in blennies. This guy actually that I'm working with, uh, he uh, does genetic stuff on blennies, and because there hasn't been a lot done, especially on their transition from water to land, he's hoping to do some experiments and stuff in Guam with some local uh, experts to kind of see, uh, to test the blennies that we can find, also get some samples for genetic data and things like that. 
Yeah, cool. How do you do you have to catch blennies for that uh, for that field work? And if so, how do you catch them? Yes, I do have to catch them. Um, so depends. We're I as I understand it, we're going to be looking for amphibious ones. So those guys go back and forth water to land. Some of them you can catch on land. Others of them I will have to snorkel and get them. And generally, uh, from what I've been told, uh, it takes two people to catch them. They're very quick. They're very fast. Uh, and you take a net and you kind of like corral them into the net and just kind of carefully get them. Yay. Oh, that sounds like you will have a great time ahead. Great fun for sure. Yeah, definitely. Super excited. And so, Liz, for those of us that might have been snorkeling in sort of Indonesia or somewhere in the Pacific before, would we have seen blennies? Yes, maybe you might have. Um, if not if not land blennies, probably some um, aquatics. There are quite a few colourful aquatic blennies, um, maybe some amphibious ones, but definitely you would have seen some. That's cool to know. Not that I would have noticed it at the time. but <laughs> They like to live in their little holes and they yeah. hide very well. But if you saw a little head pop out of a hole, that's I'll probably pay, a blenny. pay attention in the future. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for being my guest on the show and talking about your research, Liz. I'm sure that people will appreciate blennies when they come across them and can actually identify them like, oh, a blenny. We'll appreciate them much more now. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This was Boiling Point, the weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. We will be back with a new science story next week. Bye for now.